Jesus made bold claims, and the people of his time were trying to figure out who he really was. His claims left them confused and sometimes angry. Through his powerful I am statements, Jesus invites us to gain a fresh perspective and a deeper understanding of who he truly is. Each statement gradually reveals the divinity and character of Jesus. As we piece them together, we see how knowing him changes everything. We know who he is because he said, I am. It is good to have you here this Okay, stop. All right, well, yeah, uh, Pastor Brian, yeah, I think uh, Pastor Kip's looking for an associate. You might check into that. Hey, uh, it is good to have you here. Those of you in the room, those of you online, those of you at our Skagit campus, I know a third of uh, our Skagit campus is at a retreat this weekend, but you're glad to have you with us as well, as well today. And I'm really, I really am glad to be here, uh, back here this morning. Actually, I, I really could have preached last weekend. I, I really think I could have. It was just a, a, according to doctor's orders. But man, I'm so grateful for Pastor Scott. He just did such a phenomenal job last weekend. Yeah with a great uh, message that we all needed to hear. Um, I I am allowed to preach. When I was being discharged from the hospital, the doctor who had done the procedure said, now here's all the restrictions over the next few weeks. One of them is that you cannot lift your left arm above your shoulder. And he said, I know you're a pastor, so don't get inspired or excited and throw your hands up in the air. So I can throw one arm in the air. I'm kind of a one-arm preacher, and if I could fly, I'd fly in circles. So if you see this one go above my um, shoulder, throw something or or get me to stop because I don't want to pull wires out of my heart. Regardless, hey, uh, when there's a lack of information, a lack of knowledge, or misinformation about certain things, misunderstandings, the results can lead to really disastrous outcomes if there's not enough information or some misinformation. I'll give you an example of this, a real life example of this. In 1916, the United States was being ravaged by a a pandemic. It was the polio virus was spreading with its crippling effects and sometimes fatal and deadly effects, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily with children. In fact, in 1916, in New York City, that year, they lost 2,000 children to death to polio. And there was a lot of confusion about this. There wasn't a vaccine for it yet. There was a lot of lack of knowledge and misinformation. And one of the, the speculations and rumors that began to spread, some misinformation, because they didn't know how it was contracted, they didn't know how it was transmitted, they didn't know how it was carried, One of the thoughts and one of the rumors, one of the theories which became widespread belief, and some of you are going to think I'm making this up. I'm not. You can fact check me on this. Was the belief that the polio virus was actually carried and spread by cats. True story. And so in 1916, in New York City, New York City had 72,000 cats put down killed. I know, it's a collective awe. Some of you think I'm smiling inside. <laughs> How could I smile at such a catastrophic event? Okay, a little dad joke for you. Leaves me catatonic. But regardless, it was the misinformation that led to a very destructive outcome. 
And the truth is, in our day today and over the centuries and even in Jesus' day and even before, it was a lack of information and misinformation about God that led to a very destructive outcome of what does it mean, who is God, and what is he like, and what is life with God supposed to be? This life that was supposed to be joy-filled and, and filled with grace and forgiveness and life-giving and, and, and a wonderful experience because of some misinformation had become this legalistic, obligatory you know, rituals, rules, um, and, and kind of even guilt and, and all this drudgery. And no doubt that broke the heart of Jesus and probably what broke his heart even more is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the laws, the ones who represent God were often the source of the misinformation that pushed people away from God. In fact, he would say to them, you're blind guides. You're supposed to be leading the way, but you don't even know it for yourself which honestly is quite sobering for me because I've been entrusted with the incredible responsibility and privilege of speaking on God's behalf. And I'm sure that there have been times in my life in ministry when I've misrepresented God. Times when I was strong on something because of my own personal stuff that I was going through or opinions and I know that I will be held responsible for that. And my desire is to represent God and Jesus and the word of God as purely as possible. Now, I'm a fallen human being, so you always have to have that filter. But I don't want to soft sell sin. And I don't want to skimp on grace. I don't want to back away from the benefits of following Jesus or the cost. I want to represent him. I want to point us to find and follow Jesus, to love him more, to know that there is no better life than the life following the one who loves us most. So Jesus comes and he, he comes to set the record straight of this misinformation about God, who he is, what he's like, what life with him is like. Not only to teach that, but to model it and to show that, that, that he, would, he would represent God, he would reveal God to those who are misinformed or underinformed. In Hebrews chapter one, it says this, the son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That when Jesus came, he said, you know what, what you're seeing here, who I am, how I operate, my priorities, my interactions, my life, you're getting a glimpse of God. And in Philippians chapter two, it says that Jesus was in the very nature God, the same. Colossians chapter one says that Jesus is the, is the, uh, the, the image of the invisible God. And in Colossians chapter two, it says all the deity in Christ, all the deity dwells in bodily form. In John 14 at the last supper, when Philip was saying, Jesus, when are we ever gonna get to see father? Jesus said to him, Philip, do you not know by now? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. He would say, I and the Father are one. That Jesus in his life reveals who God is, reveals what God is like, reveals what life with God should be. It's not like God hadn't done this before. I mean, throughout the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, 
He had tipped his hand over and over again. I love this verse out of Isaiah chapter 65 where it says this. God says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. See, God doesn't play hide and seek with us. In fact, if you look at scripture, what you find is God operates on a seek and reveal He came to seek and save that which is lost. He reveals himself to us. And what we've been doing this summer is looking at how Jesus comes with these statements, these I am statements, primarily, not exclusively, primarily out of the book of John, these statements of this is who I am. And in doing so, he not only reflects who he is, he reveals who God is. And each one of them is a different facet, like a a large diamond that you turn and there's a different facet with a different glory, different beauty, different color, different aspect of not only who God is, but what life with God is like. So today we're going to look at another one. Today we're going to be in John chapter 10. And if you've been with us in this series and you've been really kind of keeping track of all this, you may remember that four or five weeks ago, Pastor Brian preached out of John chapter 10 in one of the I am's where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That's the back half of John chapter 10. Today, I'm going to be on the, on the front end of John chapter 10. And another one of these I am statements, we're going to be looking at primarily one verse is where we're going to land. But let me kind of catch you up to speed in this. In John chapter 6, we looked at one of these I am statements where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I think that was maybe week two we looked at, week two or three, somewhere in there. I am the bread of life. In John chapter 7, he talks about, he doesn't say, I am the living water, but he says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me, and it will be like fountains of water welling up, you know, living water from within you, like I'm the living water. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who's been blind, and again he says, I am the light of the world. And as this blind man comes back to him, he's helping the blind man not only receive his physical sight, but to receive a spiritual sight, to receive who Jesus is and who this man can be. And so in the midst of all this, he's talking to this blind man, and Jesus makes this statement, I've come basically to help the blind see and the seeing ones blind. But it's not just Jesus and this man who's just been healed from blindness. That there are the religious leaders around And they hear this, John chapter 9, verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are are we blind too? Or maybe, maybe with their self-righteousness, with their pride and their spiritual, you know, well-being in their own minds, they're like, of course he's not talking about us. If we say, what, are we blind too? Of course Jesus is going to respond, well, no, 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 you're the enlightened ones. You guys know it all. You've memorized the Pentateuch. You, you, You have sight. Or maybe they had had enough interactions with Jesus when he calls them out that they feel like here's just another shot. I mean, he's called us a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, sons of hell. That doesn't go over well with religious guys. And now he's calling us blind. And Jesus basically says, listen, if you were blind, you would have an excuse. You've got no excuse. You're guilty. So it's in that context that we find ourselves at John chapter 10. And it appears that no longer is he speaking to this man who was blind and now healed, that now he's turned his attention to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders, to these who misrepresent God. And he begins to speak in kind of this 
picturesque metaphorical language with some stuff that leaves them kind of scratching their head. John chapter 10, if you're there, verse one, where it says this, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, this, was, this, this one's on the test, he says, I tell you the truth, this is important. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Now, remember, this is just kind of coming out of the blue. They're like, oh, here he goes again. One of these stories, there's a sheep pen, and there's a man that's climbing over the wall, and he's a thief and a robber, and they're trying to figure out kind of who is who, because he's always talking about it, and someone's us and them, and he had all these things. But what he's saying, in essence, is this. Whatever he's talking about, there's a sheep pen, there's a gate, but if someone scales the wall, if someone goes over the fence to get in it, they're not up to anything good. I mean, that's kind of obvious to us. If, if there's a, a way to get, if there's a front door in your house and someone's going in the window, something's up. And I learned this a long time ago, 1984. It was between my junior and senior year in college. That summer, I spent the summer in Olympia, Washington at a church being a, a summer intern youth pastor at this church. A friend of mine that I went to college with went to that church. His name was Mark. We played on the church softball uh, team together and we did some stuff. And one night after a, a, a hot day in Olympia, kind of like today we'll be, in, and we played softball, and afterwards it was later in the evening, he says, hey, let's go for a swim. And I said, fine, he's from Olympia, there's a bunch of lakes there, I figured we'd go to one of the lakes I'd been in before. And we get in his car and he takes me farther south than, than where I had been living that summer. And I said, where are we going? He says, I've got a surprise for you. We're gonna jump off of Tumwater Falls. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Tumwater Falls, it's significant. And I said, is that, is that legal? She says, oh yeah, we do this all the time. <laughs> and so we drive and as I said, it's later in the evening, he parks, we go across this lawn and he begins to scale an eight foot chain leak fence. He says, come on, let's jump over this fence. That should have been a clue to me. <laughs> if you're climbing over an eight foot chain leak fence, this probably isn't okay. And so I followed him climbing over this fence and got on the other side. I said, you sure this is okay? You sure this is legal? Yeah, it's fine. You know, later in the week when I was telling people in this church that I was serving at how great it was to jump off Tumwater's Fall, the gasps of how illegal and how dangerous. I tell you what, I'm not endorsing it. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life, but it was completely illegal. We're climbing over a fence to get that. That ought to be an indicator. And Jesus says, listen, if there's a sheep pen and there's a gate, if you're coming over the wall, something's not right. And then he continues to talk about the gate, he talks about the pen, he talks about some strangers, he talks about watchmen, the gatekeepers, he talks about the shepherd, he talks about uh, how the sheep hear his voice and know how they won't follow the stranger, they'll run away. All of this different terminology about sheep and pens and gates and watchmen and walls and, and, and it's all quite confusing. In fact, if you read John chapter 10, one through five, it is just like, well, no, what's the point? What, what's he talking about with all of this? So in verse six, John 10, 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. And I get that. Therefore, Jesus said again, here he goes. I tell you the truth, verily, verily, truly, truly, I'm going, to I'm going to tell you something. Now, I wonder, I wonder if there were times when Jesus would say things almost like encrypted, a little mysterious a little vague, a little opaque, not because he wanted to play with them, not because he wanted to confuse them, but because he wanted to pique their interest. 
Because if you left them guessing a little bit, maybe they would lean in. Maybe they would be engaged. Maybe they'd be saying, what's he getting at? What's he trying to say? I've got to figure this out. I mean, good screenwriters know how to do this. It, it, this I know this dates me, but if you remember the series 24, at the end of that series, it always left you like, no! Like, we can't wait another week. And, and then when you could binge watch it, some of you know what it's like to stay up until four in the morning watching just one more episode. Because he just kind of draws you in. And I wonder if Jesus kind of draws them in. I, I, I know you're a little confused, but let me tell you the truth. They're going, okay, this is it. He's going to explain this. And it's at this point that he reveals another one of these I am statements. Reveals a little bit more about himself. Reveals a little bit more about God. Push pause on that one. Before we get to that, when I was growing up, there was a picture that was just, I don't know, a part of my childhood. It was a painting that was actually painted in 1942 by a, name, a man named Warner Salmon. It's actually a pretty famous picture. Some of you may have seen this before. Here's, here's the picture. The picture, I don't know if any of you ever seen this picture before. The title of the picture is Christ at Heart's Door. And, and I remember as a child, them talking through this picture. And it's just so much message in this. I mean, you see the archway of the door there on, on the one side. And then the, and then the, the, the corbel or, or the... the uh, the bracket on the eaves and the light on the other side kind of make this, this kind of this heart and the thorns and the darkness around, but the light of Jesus and the fact that the door doesn't have a door handle, that it's only open from the inside. And the whole thing is based on Revelation 3.20 where Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter and eat with him and he with me. Powerful, beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Now, what we get to, get to see here is that Jesus is going to give us another I am statement that is similar, but maybe even more significant. Back to John chapter 10, verse 7. He says this. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, and here it is. Ego ami. That, that's the Greek. I am. I. I. I am, he says. I am the gate. Some of your translations will say, I am the door for the sheep. Now, here's another one of those st statements that Jesus makes. Like, what is he talking about? This is a pretty strong statement he makes about himself. I am the door for the sheep. He's just been talking about those who entered through, you know, and the strangers and all this thing. And for the Pharisees, they're probably wrestling with this because they saw themselves kind of like doorkeepers for the things of God. Uh, they were like, they operated like bouncers, like quality control, like guardians. They, they're not going to let just any riffraff in, especially when it comes into the temple. And they're going to make sure that they're qualified to be a part of this thing, the sacred stuff of God. So that's kind of their job. And now Jesus is saying that he's the door and he's the gate. But the Pharisees, they take their job very seriously. In fact, so seriously that sometimes they make it very difficult for anyone who would want to be a part of that. Again, I'm not endorsing this, but there's a movie, an old movie called uh, Monty Python, The Search for the Holy Grail. And, and in this movie, there's a moment where these guys have to go across the bridge of death. And, and there underneath the bridge of death is this gorge of eternal peril. And, and there's a bridge keeper that's kind of making sure not just anybody gets in here. And so the first comes up, Lancelot comes up, and he's, they have to answer three questions. 
And Lancelot is asked these questions. What is your name? Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Very well, in you go. Seems pretty easy. But the fourth one, King Arthur comes along. King Arthur comes to the, the, the keeper of the bridge and he says, what is your name? Is King Arthur. What is your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. And then he asks him the third question. It's not what's your favorite color. The third question he asks King Arthur is, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> Who can answer that question? This is impossible. I can't get in there. See, the Pharisees would come and they would ask these kind of questions. They would set the bar so high that the hoops they had to jump through, no one could get in. And so they felt like they were keeping things. So much so that it was, it was burdensome. In fact, Jesus would speak of the Pharisees and he would say this in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They're the bouncers keeping people away from God. They won't let just anybody in. And Jesus comes along and he hangs out with the very people that they reject. And it seems like while they won't let just anybody in, Jesus seems to let absolutely everybody in. He's not just the welcoming committee, but he says, actually, I'm the gate. I'm, I'm the door. And, and this is the beauty of this. this. This is the good news of the gospel, that access is granted through Jesus, not my efforts. When he says, I'm the gate, I'm the door, I'm, you come in through me. You can try climbing the, the wall with all your good deeds and keeping all the rules and following all the rituals and do all those things, but the access is through me. You get this one wrong, you get misinformation on this, and the results are disastrous outcomes of the legalism and the burden and the self-righteousness and the pride and the judgment and the condemnation and the shame and the guilt and the burden and all of that. And Jesus says, that is not what life with God is like. In fact, he would say these famous words in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Not more work, not burden, life. You know, at the end of our service here, uh, Ann and Skagit, we're going to close with a song. Like, not now. <laughs> Some of you are like, cool, this is the shortest sermon. Oh, we haven't even got to the verse yet. <laughs> but we're going to close with a song because the bridge of the song says this. Shake up the ground of all my traditions. Break down the wall of all my religion. Your way is better. So many of us were brought up and raised where it's follow these traditions, do this religion. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the gate. It's access through me. It's what I've done for you. You walk through this. Well, in John chapter 10, verse eight, he talks, this could be its own sermon about those who've come before me. You know, they're thieves and robbers. And then in verse nine, he restates the I am, the ego of me. He says it again. He says, I am the gate. I am the door. And this is the verse I want us to spend the remainder of our time on in John chapter 10, verse 9. Because 
There is a, a whole lot of depth in this verse as he reveals who he is and what life with God can really be like. He says this, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved, he will come in and go out and find pasture. Whoever, whoever enters through me, this is again what we've seen before, the exclusivity and the inclusivity of Jesus. Whoever, it's not just for Jewish people, it's not just for Jewish men, it's not just for priests, it's not just for religious people, it's not for any ethnicity, it's whoever, the gates are wide open, but there's a very narrow gate, whoever enters through me. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kevin uh, Stamper preached on that uh, out of uh, John 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the second half, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the exclusivity of Christ. It's only through Jesus. There is no other way. There's no other name by which we may be saved. However, it's open to anybody and everybody. Whoever would come through me, will be saved, will be saved. So we find with Jesus that not only is he the gate, the door, but he's the gate and the, he's the door and the gate of safety. It will be saved. Now, I think there's a couple ways you can look at this. We, we talk about being saved, salvation. Yes, absolutely, it is through Jesus that we have salvation, that we're saved for life and eternity. But remember the context of the metaphor. He's talking about sheep and shepherds and pens, and about the sheep that would come through him. And sheep, if you think about it as an animal, they're really quite defenseless and vulnerable. And safety is not something that they can produce for themselves. I mean, you think about in the animal kingdom, the whole fight or flight response that animals, even humans for that matter, but animals in the animal kingdom, the fight or flight. Sheep just can't do this very well. They don't fight very well. They don't even flight very well. I mean, think about it. Who has ever said, man, you run like a sheep. <laughs> the blinding speed of that sheep, man, that is bad. I mean, you uh, Sheep don't have blinding speed. They can't even flight well. They can't run away from cat, you know, their, their, their uh, whatever, predators. And they can't take flight. They don't have wings. They can't even jump. There are no wings, no springs on the sheep. Some animals, like a squirrel, maybe even a raccoon, they'll climb up a tree. Sheep can't climb trees. Some animals will jump in the water and swim away or go into water. Sheep are scared to death of water. With all that wool, they are just an anchor around water. They, they don't even like to get close to any running water. They, 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 don't even, they don't even flee very well. Some animals will burrow into the ground. They can't dig themselves in the ground. Some animals, like a rabbit, will go into the thicket. If a sheep does that, he's just a stuck meal waiting to be eaten. They can't even flee well. They don't even have good camouflage. A sheep cannot camouflage himself unless he's in a woolen mill. He just doesn't have any camouflage. And the fighting aspect... Not a chance. Some animals, they can't fight, but they intimidate. Puffer fish, little fish, blows himself up bigger than life, scares away his predators. Peacock, little defenseless bird, spreads out these, these eyes and makes himself bigger than life and intimidate. What, sheep does that? Pfft, look, cotton candy. They, it won't work for them. They don't have fangs. They don't, they don't have claws. They don't have a roar. I mean, how intimidating is... 
It just isn't going to work. They don't have a stinger. And while they might not smell the best, they don't have the stink of a skunk. I mean, not enough to really repel you. They've got nothing. They've got no flight, no fight. All they've got is fright. (laughs) Timid little creatures. Jesus says, I'm the door for these creatures. They enter through me. Their safety. I mentioned that Pastor Brian preached on the second half of John chapter 10. Another I am statement that's related but separate. Where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know what's amazing? With Jesus as the door, as the gate for us. He says, you enter into me. Nothing can touch you or your life without passing through me. That doesn't mean there will never be hardships in life. That doesn't mean there will never be difficulties. That doesn't mean there will never be pain and loss and tragedy. What it means is Jesus is fully aware of it. He will never leave you or forsake you. And he will walk with you through that valley. I'm the door, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be kept safe. And then he goes on beyond that. He'll be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. It sounds like kind of a, a free range setup. You're not set in a cage, and and, and that's wonderful. Remember who he's talking to, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. One of the requirements to be a Pharisee is that you memorize the Pentateuch, the whole of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These guys knew the scripture. And when Jesus says, you know, you come to me, you will come in, you'll go out, I think it may have sparked something in their minds of something that yeah, there's the, the, the free range aspect, but there's something even deeper. There's something that he's referencing that we don't pick up, but they would have. You have to go back 1400 years before Jesus and Moses is leading the people out of slavery, out of the, you know, the uh, captivity of Egypt and into the wilderness and preparing to go into the promised land. But because of Moses's disobedience of hitting the rock and God says, you will lead these people, but you will not be allowed into the promised land. So the 40 years have gone, the generation before has passed away. And God says to Moses, I want you to go up on the hill. I want you to look into the promised land. I want you to see how I'm going to fulfill my promise. Moses, you don't get to go, but the people do. And then after you've seen that, then I will bring you home as the way of all those who have gone before you. And when he goes up on this mountain, Moses prays a prayer, and it's recorded in Numbers chapter 27. And look at the similarities here. The Pharisees would have known this passage. Numbers 27, Moses prays, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in. Does that sound familiar? Wait, it gets even better. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses is saying, 
These people have been in captivity. They've been in the wilderness. I want someone to lead them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. God appoints a man named Joshua. The Hebrew word Yeshua translated into Greek the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Oh, I love that stuff. Because when Jesus is saying this, they're all going back to Numbers 27. They're going back to Moses. They're going back to Joshua, the one that would lead them, lead them out of the wilderness into the promised land. Joshua, Jesus, same name. Here's this one. He's claiming to be the one that will take them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. This is an amazing statement that Jesus is making. Jesus is the door and the gate of freedom. A freedom not to sin, but freedom from sin. Freedom to live this life. Freedom to get out of the bondage. Freedom to get out of the slavery. Freedom to get out of the wilderness and into the promised life and the promised land that is available to every single one of us. He gives this kind of freedom. There's, as long as, I mean, because it's fair week, you know, Northwest Washington fair week. It's fair week. As long as we're talking about livestock, sheep and all that. Let me tell you another one. There's one, another cool picture out of Malachi. It's a small little snapshot. In fact, if you read it, you may have skipped right over it, but it's powerful. Malachi was the last prophet before the 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist shows up. Malachi is prophesying about this day when the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. Malachi chapter 4, and look at this picture. Malachi chapter 4. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out, and here it is, You will go out, that's the terminology that Jesus used, you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Oh, what a picture. My wife and I were at the fair, we were walking through the cattle barns, and I just got to tell you, I'm not a cattle farmer, I'm not a dairy farmer, but I've got a soft spot in my heart for a brown Swiss cow. Those big old brown eyes and those eyelashes, and I I just say, oh, honey, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, Holsteins, they're fine, but no, man, those Swiss, ooh, come on. And you see these cows, and they're there, and they're showing, and they're taken care of, and they're fed, and there's little calves, too. Oh, they're so sweet, these little calves, and they're in the little stalls, and they get their food, and, and they get fresh straw and shavings every day, and they're taken care of, but a calf is not meant to stay in a stall. I mean, maybe for the fair, but after the fair, You take that cow out to the field, that little calf, oh, this is the life. Okay, maybe no corn dogs and curly fries, but look at this, green grass and blue skies and white clouds and butterflies and flowers. That's where the calf lives. And I think this picture of Jesus saying, this religion that you've been been trapped in, it's like a stall. You are not meant to live in this stall. You're like a calf that's released into the field to experience life. That's what I have for you. Your misunderstanding about what life in God is has kept you in a stall. Don't stay there any longer. And this picture we found of Jesus coming to bring them life. He says, I am the gate. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Find pasture. 
Now, again, for those of us familiar with scripture or raised in church, pasture is a picture that's used frequently. Psalm 23, you make me lie down in green pastures. We, some of us memorize that one our whole lives. Psalm 100, where, you know, the sheep, uh, people of his hand, the sheep of his pasture. There's, there's multiple uh, references to this, this pasture. But it says they will find pasture. That, that Jesus is this door, this, this gate of life. Pasture was always a good thing. It was the abundance, it was the flourishing, it was the life that we were to lead. I find it interesting in Isaiah 53, it says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone our own way. We, we get lost. Now, the nursery rhyme is fine. You know, the, the uh, little bo peep lost her sheep and didn't know where to find them. Leave them alone and they will come home, wagging their tails behind them. Works good in nursery rhyme. It's just not true for sheep. Again, they don't have built-in GPS like a lot of animals. They're not going to return like the salmon of Capistrano. It's a little dumb and dumber quote for those of you who know. All right, so they get lost. We get lost. Jeremiah 50, it says this, my people have been lost sheep. And what's worse, their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over to the mountains and the hills and forgot their own resting place. They forgot. Don't even know how to get back there. And whoever found them, devoured them, their enemy said, we're not guilty for they sinned against the Lord. Look at this. They sinned against the Lord their true pasture. The Lord is the true pasture. Maybe now, when you read Psalm 23, and it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, that's in the very presence of the Lord. It says that we are the sheep of his pasture. We're the sheep of the Lord. He is our true pasture. The Lord the hope of their fathers. Honest confession on this one. In April and May, when we were putting this summer series together, and I knew that I was going to have several other people, Pastor Brian, Kevin, and Steve, different ones. Uh, I didn't know Scott at the time, but knew that there'd be other people that would be preaching in this series. I gave all of those guys first dibs, first choice of which I am's they wanted to preach because I'm just that kind of a guy. And when they were all divvied up, I took the rest. And I'll be honest, going into the series in the spring, the one I was least excited to preach about was this one. I am the gate, I am the door. And I was like, okay. Until I began to study it. And this is the beauty of the living, active word of God. That the more I immersed myself in this one verse, John 10, 9. It just came to life. That Jesus, he's our access, he's our door, it's not on our efforts. And it's open to anyone and everyone, and it's through him. And when we go through him, it's this life of, of safety, the knowing that nothing can touch us until it's gone through him first. 
And there's this freedom and there's this life. And I got to the point where I'm thinking, this is one of my favorite I am statements of all times. It's so beautiful. And what's amazing is it gets overshadowed by the next verse a lot. But on the heels of John 10, 9, then Jesus comes and repeats this very famous verse, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The only way to that life is through the door. It's through the gate to the pasture who is Jesus. See, this is not just wisdom, but truth, and not just truth, but beauty. If we get misinformation about this, the result will be a disastrous outcome of a religion stuck in a stall. But we understand the truth. It's life in the true pasture of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. Kind of a challenge for us. Whenever we go to Israel, in any Jewish hotel, Jewish business, Jewish restaurant, Jewish building, as you enter into any of the doors, on the right-hand side, there's a little box on the door frame. It's a little, usually a rectangle box, and it's called a mezuzah. It's in uh, obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, where the Shema in 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then it says in verse 9, bind these on your foreheads and on your hands. Put these on your doorposts and on your gates. As a reminder, and you'll see Jewish people, they'll, they'll come into a door and they'll just do this. Kind of just kiss the word of God as they go through. It's just a reminder of who they are. And here we are looking at Jesus saying, I'm the door, I'm the doorpost, I'm the gate. Can I throw this challenge out for you? For this week, maybe, just for this week. Every morning, maybe when you leave your home or your apartment or your dorm room or wherever you're leaving, as you walk through that door, just pause for a second. Don't have to make a big show. Don't have to do this out loud. No one has to. Just pause for a moment and think, Jesus, you are the door. You are the access. Today, as I walk through this door, again, I am walking into you, my pasture. And I know that no matter what I face today, you're already aware of it. And you will walk with me through that. And I have freedom in you to live this life because you are the door. What if we just started our day just nonchalantly, just touch the door on the way out and remember, today I live in Jesus.